This episode is brought to you by DistroKid. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide, no escape from reality. Hey everybody, today and for the whole month of August, we are reflecting on artists who are no longer with us. We asked you, the listeners, via our Krista Makes a Podcast Facebook group, what artists and songs you would like us to discuss, and Queen were mentioned numerous times. Queen were led by the amazing Freddie Mercury. And together with my co-host and producer of this show, Chris Fafalius, we take a deep dive into the smash hit, Bohemian Rhapsody, taken from Queen's 1975 release, A Night at the Opera. Bohemian Rhapsody has spawned generations of listeners and continues to go down as one of the most popular rock songs ever recorded. Chris and I had a blast breaking this one down. Enjoy. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. All right, Chris, we're here for the third episode of Artists That Are No Longer With Us. And wow, I, I, how do you sum up this track? This is one of the most bombastic, grandiose pieces of music uh, ever written. I guess at this point, 120-some episodes or whatever, however many episodes we've done, we've earned the right to dive into Bohemian Rhapsody, finally. <laughs> Chris, I've heard you say this before, and I think I agree. I think this is the greatest song ever written. Uh, I don't know what else there is. I, 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 There's so many amazing songs out there, as we all know, but there's just... How did this man come up with this? How did he how did he write this? <laughs> well, Chris, one thing I thought was really interesting is, you know, on our show we've heard lots of stories about people writing songs in 15 minutes or it just came to me and the whole song came out in half an hour. This song I believe took Freddie over the course of like 6 or 7 years to write this. And now is that you surmising that or is that fact? I don't know. From what I read about this song, he started writing this in the late 60s, like 1969 or maybe 1970. And it wasn't until, you know, 1975 that this song was released on Queen's fourth album, A Night at the Opera. He had been working on this for many years. That's incredible. And the backstory of this song, uh, in addition to what, what you just explained, is absolutely incredible. When they presented it to radio programmers, to their label, they're like, there's no way we're going to get a you know almost six minute song. Yeah. Five minutes and 55 seconds song on the radio. And they had such pull at this time because the band was doing so well that they were actually walking into radio stations or management and saying, hey, we'll give you a, a, a sneak peek of this song, but but you can't play it in full. And then, of course, they started playing it in full. And then the label, you know, people were going to record stores looking for the single, looking for the 45. And it wasn't in the stores. And that's when the label went okay, maybe the band's right on this. And, you know, they talked about that and shed a little light on that in the biopic, uh, the movie Bohemian Rhapsody. But, you know, prior to that, the song was a major hit for this band in the 70s. Then, about 15 years later, uh, Wayne's World came right. out. And that's where I think you mentioned that you were introduced to the song. Yeah, I mean, I was a kid. How would I have really known, you know, I'm like an 11-year-old kid, I think, at the time. Yeah. I hadn't heard this yet. I had heard some Queen songs, maybe We Will Rock You, you know, but I was still a little kid. I was listening to Boys to Men, you know, so yeah. so this was my first introduction to them. So you can't fault. I've heard people bring that up a lot lately with the songs that are getting popular because of Stranger Things, be it Master of Puppets or uh, Running Up That Hill or whatever, that people are like, oh, you, you, this is how you found out about this. Well, yeah, you find out about things because of popular movies and TV shows when you're a kid and then you dive in further. But yeah, Wayne's World, 
made this song reemerge in the public consciousness, but it was already a huge song. And and there was a generation of new fans then that thought that this was a new song then. Yeah. They had no idea that this song almost came out 20 years prior to that. Now, fast forward about 28 years later, and the Queen biopic comes out. Yeah. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, the movie, which ushered in a whole other generation of fans. This song is the most streamed song from the 20th century. I know I went on YouTube, there's 1.5 billion plays of this video. And I'm sure Spotify and and some of the other streaming sites are are through the roof with it as well. Right. And Chris, you know what's really interesting about the music video for this song? I, I don't. It's credited as the first music video. Really? Did you know that? That was a trivia question at a a trivia night that I go to on Monday nights near where I live. And just in the past month, that was a trivia question. I looked it up and it, I, it seemed like the Beatles and Elvis made sort of videos. I don't know what or why this was necessarily considered the first music video, but it was. Yeah, I never never really thought about that. I always kind of considered the Buggles, but that was because that was the first video on MTV, yeah. Video Killed the Radio Star. But uh, yeah, I could I could see the case being made for this being the first one. You know, bands were starting to do that in the late 60s, uh, early to mid 70s, starting to do performance clips, they would call them. I don't even think they were called videos then. But, you know, this, this song was produced by Roy Thomas Baker, a very famous English producer, in addition to Queen... He's produced Nazareth, The Cars, Foreigner, Journey, Cheap Trick, Alice Cooper, uh, on and on. And uh, something he did with this, I mean, obviously, it's the genius of Freddie Mercury, but he really made this track shine. Yeah, I mean, it was recorded at five different studios from August to September of 1975. They had to bounce across eight generations of 24-track tape, meaning they had nearly 200 tracks of overdubs on this song and chris what's so funny about this song is yeah it was a hit you talked about it going to radio there's no chorus to this song it's six minutes long it's divided into an intro a ballad segment an operatic passage a hard rock part and then as we've liked to talk a lot about on the show lately a coda a reflective coda on the song and it is just it's a masterpiece but it is just it goes against everything that you would think would make a hit song and here are you and I this many years later talking about this being the greatest song ever yeah this uh, on paper this shouldn't have worked it shouldn't have gotten on the radio uh, what's there to hold on to here there's no chorus there's no refrain that beats you in the head but it's just I'll use the word again. It's so bombastic and amazing. And I'll quote you. It's a masterpiece. Of course, Brian May is the guitarist of the band, an absolute legend. John Deacon is a monster on the bass. And uh, Roger Taylor, what can you say? He's just an amazing drummer that has influenced pretty much everybody. And obviously, Chris, the rest of the members of Queen are still alive. And there's a lot of the songs they worked on together in the studio. They, They wrote in the studio. But this one came all from Freddie's mind. This is credited completely to Freddie, which is why we're talking about it on here. Correct. And when they go out and play it on the big screens, Freddie's still joining them. He's basically, you know, singing, uh, piping, you know, his vocals through the PA and as a tribute to him because, you know, they they realize, yes, we, we may be able to go on as a band and a live entity, but this is Freddie's thing. This is his masterpiece and, and we're going to honor him. And I think they do an incredible, incredible job of it. But yeah, I should probably probably dive into this thing because we could talk about Queen all day, and, and I'm, I'm sure most of our listeners are, are, are aware. Well, yeah, we don't need to go into the backstory of Queen. If you're listening to this and you don't know the backstory of Queen, yeah, you could go to Wikipedia, but watch the movie, Bohemian Rhapsody. I mean, for being that type of movie, it does have its cheesiness, but I thought Remy Malek did an awesome job as Freddy in this movie, and I thought it, you know, it told the story really well. Absolutely. And whoever played the character, I'm blanking on his name, Brian May, it was it was a dead ringer for what Brian looked like in the 70s. It was an unreal matchup. Yeah, it was great. (laughs) But, you know, listeners can can do that on their own if you haven't already. But before we get into the song, Chris, I want to preface this by saying that Freddie really never talked about the meaning of this song. When he was asked about it, he kind of brushed it off. He wanted people to take their own meaning away from it. I've researched a lot of stuff from people that were close to him. That's where I've uncovered a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about. And 
I would like to preface this by saying that we are going to talk a lot about what we think it's about and what we've seen people say that it's about, but don't let listening to us affect your personal connection with the song. I'm, I'm doing my best. You know, I have my own personal connection with the song too. And anything I've learned has only deepened my personal, you know, affinity for this song. Sure. And yeah, we'd love to hear your interpretation of what this song means to you lyrically. So uh, if you haven't already, please join our, the Krista Makes a Podcast Facebook group. Uh, we have over 4,000 members in there right now. It's a lot of fun. Lots of interaction. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this. But uh, are you ready, Chris? You ready to tackle this? I am ready. And, and Chris, I have a, a thing I want to read here from Brian May before we dive into it about the meaning of the song. Uh, this is a, a quote from him. He said, What is Bohemian Rhapsody about? Well, I don't think we'll ever know. And if I knew, I probably wouldn't want to tell you anyway, because I certainly don't tell people what my songs are about, he said. I find that it destroys them in a way, because the great thing about a great song is that you relate to it with your own personal experiences in your own life. I think that Freddie was certainly battling with problems in his personal life, which he might have decided to put into song himself. He was certainly looking at recreating himself, but I don't think at that point in time it was the best thing to do, so he actually decided to do it later. I think it's best to leave it with a question mark in the air. So, you know, that's what Brian May has said about the song when he's been asked about it. But you and I are going to dive into it deep right now. So you sure about that, Chris? Are you ready to tackle this monster? I am ready to get into it, man. All right, buddy. Well, Bohemian Rhapsody, as I said, five minutes and 55 seconds starts right off with vocals. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide, no escape from reality. Open your eyes. Look up to the skies and see I'm just a cool boy I need no sympathy Because I'm easy come, easy go Little high, little low Any way the wind blows Doesn't really matter Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide. No escape from reality. Open your eyes. Look up to the skies and see. I'm just a poor boy. I need no sympathy because I'm easy come, easy go. Little high, little low. Any way the wind blows doesn't really matter to me. To me. Well, Chris, we'll get right into it here. A lot of people, a popular theory is that this is about how Freddie revealed to Mary Austin, who was his wife, that he had cheated on her. And, you know, another popular theory is that this song served as Freddie's way of coming out as bisexual. And uh, biographer Leslie Ann Jones claims to have confirmed the theory with Freddie's longtime partner, Jim Hutton. Uh, Leslie Ann Jones was a Freddie Mercury biographer and... She claims to have verified this theory that this is what it's about. And as we get into it, there's so many, you know, lines and references and stuff where you're like, wow. And and it seems like so elegantly and poetically alluding to what was going on in his life at this time. And it's it's incredible. That's interesting. I I also took away from it after watching the movie, this particular part of the song, the intro here, that. It's almost like his. This could be written maybe about his his home life. You know, he had a real yep. a real struggle with him and his father, and to a lesser degree, his mother. You know, is this the real life? Is this fantasy? It's like a, a as a boy, he was trying to to escape this reality, and he's kind of going with the flow now. I'm just any way the wind blows doesn't matter to me. You know, I'm I'm, I'm never going to change what mom and dad think. Uh, that's kind of what I take away from it too. Oh, we're going to get into the the family thing for sure. But that <laughs> that that line, Chris, that no escape from reality. To me, that means I I can't run from who I am. You know, he isn't Mm -hmm. asking for sympathy. He's basically saying, this is what it is. It's, It's like the acceptance part 
of the grieving process, which we'll yeah. get into because there is a lot of death imagery in this song, uh, which it leads to the any way the wind blows doesn't really matter to me. He's going to stop fighting and living in pain, and he's just going to go with the flow. That's what I take away from from this intro. Yeah, and you touched on this a little bit ago, Chris, talking about the machines, all the uh, you know tape machines that had to and, and, and boards had to be tied together to get all these tracks to, to happen. The calibration that has to go along with that. I just want to say, you know, you go from one machine and there was like, whatever, 180, 200 vocal tracks on here. If you have a machine that's sped up or a little too slow, it's going to affect the pitch of those vocals. They had to be meticulous mm-hmm. with their engineers. There was, a, a, again, a genius behind the scenes here uh, in producer Roy Thomas Baker making all of this work because I don't think there was anything done as epic of a scale as as this song at, up to that point in 1975. Oh yeah, it's it's incredible. Yeah. The the vocals uh for the first four lines, they're panned left, right and center. It almost sounds like they have a phaser on them, but that could be because uh, there's so many vocal tracks and a lot of times when you have identical waveforms or close enough, they'll they'll cancel each other out in, in what is known as phasing, but Roy Thomas Baker was a big fan of having the actual uh, effect of a phaser on that. On the line, open your eyes, the piano comes in there. Uh, On the little high, little low, that's where we really start getting into this fun panning. If you're listening in headphones, the little high is panned hard off to the left, the little low is panned hard off to the right. I guess we're calling the whole thing an intro. The the intro to me could be the first four lines and the next parts of verse, but I'm going to go with this whole thing's the intro and we're going to get into verse one now. Mama just killed a man Put a gun against his head Pulled my trigger, now he's dead Mama just killed a man, put a gun against his head, pulled my trigger, now he's dead. Mama, life had just begun, but now I've gone and thrown it all away. Mama, ooh, 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 didn't mean to make you cry if I'm not back again this time tomorrow. Carry on, carry on, as if nothing really matters. I always interpreted this as Mama just killed a man. You know, like mama just killed, but it is mama, comma, just killed a man, meaning the I is implied. Mama, I just killed a man. And the speculation is that mama is Mary Austin, his wife. So the theory here is mama, I just killed a man, put a gun against his head, pulled my trigger. Now he's dead, meaning the old me, you know, the old me or the or the Freddie you thought was, you know, he, what you interpreted me as. That's interesting because I it's amazing I didn't take that away. I always thought it was mama. I just killed a man. I never thought of what you just said. That's really, really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I never dug deep into it. I always just thought it meant mama killed the man. <laughs> you know, like Yeah, that would that would make sense. But your theory here of of uh talking about the the girlfriend, that holds some water. You know, another thing, lyricist Tim Rice who worked a lot with Freddie on his solo songs, including The Fallen Priest and The Golden Boy. Um, He kind of confirmed this theory in an interview in October 2015. He said he'd spoken to Roger Taylor, the band's drummer, about it, and he said there's a very clear message in it. This is Freddie admitting that he is gay. In the line, Mama, I just killed a man, he's killed the old Freddie, his former image. With put a gun against his head, pulled my trigger, now he's dead. He's dead, the straight person he was originally. He's destroyed the man he was trying to be, and now this is him trying to live with the new Freddie. And he goes further to talk about the operatic section, but that was really interesting to me. I, I never really 
uh, realize that. And Chris, what's so crazy about this is when Freddie was asked about this, just like I said, he brushed it off. And all he said was like, he kind of like laughed about it. He went, ah, it's just about relationships with a little bit of nonsense in the middle. <laughs> That's what he said. It's about relationships <laughs> with a little bit of nonsense in the middle. <laughs> Yeah, which which you know, uh, leave it ambiguous. You yeah. know, leave it leave it open to interpretation, and I, I respect that. Do you know the definition of bohemian or rhapsody? I didn't look them up. Bohemian, the dictionary definition, is a socially unconventional person, especially one who is involved in the arts. Wow, <laughs> that I would say that's Freddie <laughs> to a T. And rhapsody is an effusively enthusiastic or ecstatic expression of feeling. Oh my God. <laughs> this is exactly what this song is. <laughs> and I, yeah, I was kind of with you. I kind of had a general idea what these words were about, but had had, had no idea that uh, it was going to be summed up that well for what this song's about. That that's That's absolutely incredible. Well, there's a lot of cool things that start to happen here in verse one. It's, it's very simplistic, but there's single bass notes that come in with the piano right off the top here with Mama on a lyric. About halfway through this verse, on the line, thrown it all away, there's like a cymbal crash with, I even called my drummer, Matt Yonker, this morning asking him what this meant. It's like you hit the cymbal, a crash cymbal, and then both sticks on it uh, do like a crescendo or a wash. It's a shh, like a, sh- a shimmer. I don't know what the exact term of that is, and Matt and I spent about five minutes laughing. He was trying to Google it. We couldn't find it, but but that happens there. It kind of it gives you this reset within the verse, which is really interesting. And then the drums come in on the mama line, ooh, 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 ooh. You get the drums that come in subtle. They're not bombastic and, and, and huge like they get later in the song. And on the last line here, carry on, carry on, as if nothing. On if nothing, the drums stop there. Uh, and after nothing really matters, there's eight bars of music. There's piano for the first four bars, and single bass notes come in with the piano for the next four bars to set up the next part, which I'm calling verse two. My time has come. Send shivers down my spine. Bodies aching all the time. Goodbye, everybody. I've got to go. Gotta leave you all behind and face the truth. Mama, ooh, 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 ooh. I don't want to die. I sometimes wish I'd never been born at all. That's pretty profound. So all these lyrics about dying could possibly be not only because he believes his relationship with Mary is going to be over, uh, but also his career and possibly his relationship with his family. Uh, he came from a religious family and he may, he may have thought that all this stuff was going to be over his marriage, his band's career. I mean, as if homophobia isn't still rampant in the seventies, it was way, way worse than it even is now. And, uh, thought his career was going to be over, thought his marriage was going to be over, thought his family was going to disown him when he came out as who he was, you know? Yeah, and we certainly didn't know as much about mental health or maybe the signs and the triggers. Of course, Freddie was partying a lot during this time. He's gone on record and even saw it in the movie. He was a depressed person, which a lot of artists are, and this is how they they, they get through that depression. But you almost wonder if his bandmates or, or family or, or close friends or management or anybody looked at this verse in particular and said, hmm, I wonder if he's trying to check out here. It is heavy, man. That line, I think that I don't want to die. I sometimes wish I'd never been born at all. Isn't that when you are down and you hear this song and you hear Freddie 
singing about that, that would be a, a line that you really grasp onto, you know? Yeah, it's it's. <laughs> I've talked about this how many times in the show, Chris. I I get lyric envy sometimes, and and to paint a story in a picture like this, as I said at the top, how did this guy come up with this? And on top of that, man, his delivery of it, the the emotion, <laughs> yeah. the emotion. I mean, I already think he's the greatest vocalist, definitely the greatest rock vocalist of all time, and in, in my opinion. I mean, I think in a lot of people's opinion, but definitely in my opinion. And just the the emotion that he put down on record here, it's it's incredible. It, it really is. Well, the start of this verse, the drums, bass, and the piano are in. Uh, something interesting on this second line, Chris, send shivers down my spine. On spine, I don't know if those are wind chimes or what they are, but right. they, <laughs> they start off in the left speaker and they pan quickly to the right. Again, a, a Roy Thomas Baker's signature trick there. I think it's wind chimes. It's just, I take myself back. They're in that studio, August, September, 1975. They're sitting there and they get to that part and someone's like, yeah, we should have some wind chimes go across right. there. Like, how does that happen? I mean, they are just trying to create the most grandiose piece of music imaginable. Yeah. And and Chris, you mentioned this, and I'm sure everyone has done this by now at some point. But listening to this song in a good pair of headphones or, you know, AirPods or whatever, it's a whole other experience. It really is. And again, this is done. I'll, I can't stress enough. Pre-computers. This was all mixing by hand. I can't imagine how many hands they had on the mixing board because this, this used to have to go down live. When you were doing the mix down, hey, that vocal over there needs to go up to seven. And then it needs to come down to three for this part. And if, you know, you only have two hands as a producer. So you right. have a, <laughs> other people in there, your engineers with you, push, pushing pushing faders up and down. I can't imagine what went on with, with, with that whole uh, aspect of this song. Hey, don't go anywhere. The good times will continue after a few words from our sponsors. The new punchline song, I Don't Want to Leave Yet, is out now. And as your appreciative podcast producer, I would be honored if you'd give it a listen wherever you stream music. Here's a quick little sample of it for you. Punchline, I Don't Want to Leave Yet, is available to listen to at all the places you listen to music, so thanks in advance for putting a little punchline in your ears. Looking to elevate your music career? DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that enables musicians to distribute their music to online stores and streaming platforms such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Tidal, and many more. DistroKid collects earnings and payments, sending them to you, the artist. With DistroKid, artists unlock a world of possibilities. From easily paying collaborators with splits to securing your music with DistroLock, DistroKid covers all bases. Plus, you can promote your releases with HyperFollow and create eye-catching visuals with the Spotify Canvas Generator, all for free. But that's not all. Introducing the DistroKid app, now available on iOS and Android. Artists can manage their releases, view streaming stats, and withdraw earnings, all from the palm of their hand. And for those looking to perfect their sound, check out Mixia. With its simple interface and customizable mastering options, artists can make their music sound polished and professional within minutes. And don't forget about Instant Share, DistroKid's newest feature. Share large files securely with collaborators, producers, and more ensuring your music streams at the highest quality. Ready to take your music to the next level? Download the DistroKid app and explore their suite of tools today. Plus, listeners can enjoy 30% off their first year by visiting distrokid.com slash VIP slash demakes. That's distrokid.com slash VIP slash demakes. And now, on with the show. Halfway through the verse here, the stereo guitars come in. 
the guitars sound sinister. They're playing these single note movements. It's almost dirgy, this part, which goes along with I wish I'd never been born at all. The guitars sound mean there. It's like a page out of Black Sabbath or Slayer's catalog. Never really thought of it until I really dove into this. I'm like, wow, those guitars don't sound happy there. From the piano to the guitars to the vocal delivery to the wind chimes to every, every piece of this, it fits the mood. You know, it fits the feeling of the song so perfectly. It's, it's it, unbelievable. It does, Chris. It does. But how many times has something been, I've done this with my band, I know you have too, where something is calculated and it comes off contrived. Every piece uh, in this song, every second is calculated, but it's perfect to what you just said. The wind chimes, to how these guitars come in here, they're not happy. Right. They fit the mood of what's going on lyrically. Right after verse two, out of nowhere, we don't get a chorus. We don't get a pre-chorus. We don't get a bridge. We get a 16-bar guitar solo that starts off for the first maybe four bars or so with these vocal pads that are hanging over from the previous verse. Piano, drums, are, and bass are there. And the, it's, the note choices are so tasteful of what Brian plays in this solo. And the solo to me is kind of crying. Yep. If if I could use that descriptor of this part, it's the, he couldn't have picked better note choices. That guitar is gently weeping, <laughs> for, <laughs> yeah. for sure. Uh, yeah, it's it's perfect. I, I was gonna say that I had that in my notes. It sounds like the guitar is crying. Coming out of that, we get two bars of a staccato piano part. Oh yeah. And, the, <laughs> and, and I, this is like <laughs> I gotta say, I when this starts happening, man. I am instantly transported into the back of uh, back of the car with Wayne and Garth. I am instantly there. <laughs> yes. And I mean, come on. This part, okay, it is such... We've, we've used the word for bridges as departures. I don't know if this is verse three or if this is a crazy long bridge. I, I don't know what you would call it. You even said... Uh, what, what did you call it a moment ago? It's, an, it's like an operatic passage. Uh, operatic... <laughs> Did you make that up no, or did you read no, that? No, I read that somewhere. Let me see the exact, but, what, what I call because it. Because I, oh, I think that's exactly what it is. It's an operatic passage. That's what, it, that's what it's called on the internet anyway. I see a little silhouette of a man. Scaramouche, Scaramouche, will you do the bandango? Thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening me. Galileo, 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 Galileo I am very excited to get into this, Chris, because I always thought this was silly, fun words that sounded fun to sing. And when I got into this, I was like, oh, my God. It's pretty incredible. That that piano that starts it, it's on the first two lines here. And then on the third line, and it's great. Again, talking about calculated moves within a song. On the lyric, thunderbolts and lightning, that's when the big drums and the bass and the piano and the guitar buildup comes in. Yeah. It's it, The storm is coming in. It's so cool how that part comes in there. Thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening me. 
And then we get the crazy panning with the Galileo on the right to the left, and it goes back and forth. But let's start with this uh, first little part here, Chris. I see a little silhouette of a man, Scaramouche, Scaramouche. Will you do the Fandango? Thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening me. What do you think in there? So I see a little silhouetto of a man, I will note. Yes. <laughs> uh, so the silhouetto of a man is the old Freddy, the one he left behind, the one he's leaving behind. Scaramouche is a deceitful clown character from the Italian Commedia dell'arte, which means comedy of art. The character of Scaramouche usually wears an all-black outfit, and he can be portrayed as either clever or a buffoon. And he's also portrayed as a coward who is afraid of thunderbolts and lightning. So, dude, it's already so deep. He's this character in an all-black <laughs> outfit. He's clever. How clever is Freddy right now in these lyrics and in his songwriting? But he's also perceived as a buffoon. Do you not think that people thought that this flamboyant, uh, outlandish frontman was a buffoon? Yeah. I know people thought he was, you know? For sure. So Scaramouche may have been how he was viewing himself. Will you do the Fandango, Chris? This, like, took my breath away when I read about this. So the Fandango is a couple's dance that starts slowly and increases in tempo, but Freddie... What I read was he is most likely referring to hemp fandango, which is an English term for when you're hung, when, you know, when, when you hang somebody. That's, oh, the th that's the thrashing of a hanged man's legs. So what I, I mean, it gives me chills <laughs> thinking about him writing this. The first line of this, Scaramouche, you, you clever, deceitful, buffoon clown. Will you do the fandango when we hang you? Will your will your legs thrash when we hang you for what you're about to, you know, admit to? Yeah, yeah. And then the next line, thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening me. Where it's just the chaos. It's a storm that, that that's happening right there. That's uh, that's wow, <laughs> dude. I mean, and, and like I said, it that character of Scaramouche is also portrayed as a coward who's afraid of thunderbolts and lightning. What is Freddie saying here? Is he fearful of the storm that's about to arise wh when he comes out as who he is right and what's the whole galileo thing i mean i know i know who galileo is and and figaro i mean i remember as a kid i don't know hearing this maybe on i don't know tom and jerry cartoon figaro figaro you, you would sing I, i'm assuming that's another italian singer maybe uh well F figaro is probably an allusion to mozart's classic opera the marriage of figaro <laughs> Freddie was obviously a lifelong opera lover, but we also know that Galileo was an Italian astronomer and physicist who was best known for his support of heliocentrism, basically the theory that Earth revolved around the sun. People back then did not like that. In particular, who did not like that was the Catholic Church, who persecuted Gal Galileo and forced him to recant his scientific conclusions. And then he lived under house arrest from his trial in 1633 until his death in 1642. So, in essence, I feel like at this point, Freddie is comparing himself to Galileo, saying that when he says what he, what he has to say, that, you know, comparing himself to, to Galileo, he's going to be persecuted for it. Right. And the next line is piano and vocal. Only. I'm just a poor boy. Nobody loves me. He's alluding to that poor boy from the intro again. He's talking about that. Uh, he's just a poor boy from a poor family. Spare him his life from this monstrosity. Those two lines, you get the big bass, drums, uh, piano, guitar built up again. Lots of toms. This part is really, really heavy. I'm just a poor boy. Nobody loves me. He's just a poor boy from a poor family. Let's talk about these three lines. Again, he's alluding back to the intro here. Well, the spare him his life from his monstrosity could very well be alluding to the way society viewed the gay community at the time as a monstrosity, you know? And I think, I don't mean to assume anything here, but if it goes along with what I and many people, including people that were close to him, uh, feel the song is about, then that's what that line would be alluding to well certainly and if 
if if people felt like they couldn't come out back then, which a lot of people couldn't for for various reasons, religious reasons, their family being ostracized, everything, you know, an artist like Freddie couldn't come out and just say that. That would be an essentially coming out. So he, you have to read between the lines here. And they, they were expressing themselves through their art, but in a way that, you know, y- you decipher it, you figure it out. Right. Yeah. And once again, I want to I want to say this. Freddie never said this stuff that we. this is all based on research and stuff. And I don't sure. know 100 percent if, if this could just be an amazing bunch of nonsense that we deciphered and it completely makes sense. But it, it really does. As we get further into it, I'll, I'll let you continue here, Chris, because there's more. Yeah. After Monstrosity, the piano uh, goes again by itself for two bars. And then the next line, easy come, easy go. Will you let me go? Bismillah, no, we will not let you go. And then there's the whole let him go, let him go, not to let you go thing that goes on during this whole section. The big drums and toms that, that were we saw a little bit earlier and those buildups, they come back. And uh, they're all, all those hits, again, talking about calculated, they're accenting what is happening vocally. It's just I, I'm going to use the word for the 10th time. It's bombastic. It's huge. It's, it's going with every hit. Easy come, easy go. Will you let me go? Bismillah. No, we will not let you go. Let him go. Bismillah. We will not let you go. Let him go. Bismillah. We will not let you go. Let me go. We will not let you go. Let me go. We will not let you go. Who's Bismillah? So, Bismillah is a common Arabic term meaning in the name of God. And as we talked about a little bit before freddie grew up in a really religious family yes so it sounds to me like two things are going on here chris as like the literal definition would be people defending freddie and people with their pitchforks (laughs) against freddie here but i see this i could also decipher this as what's going on in his head you know like let him go let him go let 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 the real Freddie be out to the world. And then it could be the other side, be it his family, the voices in his head from growing up in a religious family saying, we will not let you go. You know, I could see it either way here. Yeah. And it seems like it's like the angel, and the devil on the shoulders fighting in this part. And you're getting the panning of let him go in the left ear and let him go in the right ear and never let him go back and forth. It's swirling. And then I just picture Freddie's fists on a desk. No, 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 no. Right beating, you know, saying, no, you're, you're getting it all wrong here. And on all those no's, the kick drum, bass drum, and crash cymbals are on every hit. It's just very urgent sounding. Dude, this whole part, doesn't it feel like if you had, and we've all been there where we've had all these swirling thoughts in our heads. I feel like this captures that feeling, that that frenzy. And you you summed it up like that slamming your fists on the desk or something, that no, 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 no. Quiet these voices. That I, I could see that. That's like the perfect musical expression of that feeling. Yeah, and again, I love, again, simplicity here. It's just the kick and the crash drum on all those no's, but it is heavy. The very next part, it's Freddie alone. We talk about on the show a lot, Chris, about having things feel personal. It's him alone saying, oh, mama mia, mama mia. And then mama mia, let me go. Beelzebub has a devil put aside for me, for me, for me. On the last for me, there's a super high falsetto note that's just awesome. Yeah. He just, <laughs> he just, he just rips there. Oh, mama mia, mama mia. Mama mia, let me go. Beelzebub. I always thought Beelzebub was another name for devil, but maybe he can hand out other small devils that are smaller than him, or what's the definition of Beelzebub? Well, Beelzebub is one of the seven princes of hell in Christian demonology, but it's commonly used as an alternate name for Satan. Um, right. Freddie is saying what he or the character in the song has done is so horrific that Beelzebub has a whole devil waiting for him when he gets to hell. You know how I said that Freddie just downplayed what this song is about and everything? He There's actually a YouTube of Freddie getting interviewed and the guy is asking him about demonology and why he used the word Beelzebub. And Freddie just laughs and he says, I just love the word Beelzebub. 
He just down. <laughs> he completely downplays it. Like just he just lets the music speak for itself. Doesn't explain it. It's incredible. He wrote me a letter about that and said, "I study demonology and satanic things. Why do they use Beelzebub?" Which, oh. and I suppose that's a legitimate question. <laughs> why do we use it? Yeah. It's just a. I mean, why do we use anything? I mean. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean I'm, I study demonology and things. I just love the, <laughs> the word Beelzebub. Uh, Chris, also getting back to the religious terms and stuff, Mamma Mia is Italian for my mama, which is equivalent to my goodness or good heavens or something like that. But people have also said that it could, it could mean the Virgin Mary, which once again could be a subtle reference to Mary Austin. Interesting. Well, on that high falsetto he lets out on me there, the whole band, just this big buildup, and we get into four bars of straight-up 70s rock vibe. Uh, definitely metal bands that came at hard rock after this were influenced by this part alone. The stereo guitars are doing a killer riff, which the bass is mimicking and following. The drums and keys are also present. Again, this is for four bars, and then we get into what I'm calling verse four, and this is just so rocking. So you think you can stop me and spit my eye. So you think you can love me and leave me to die. Oh, baby, can't do this to me, baby. Just got to get out. Just got to get right out of here. And following that, it's weird. I counted 11 bars, which in music isn't, you know, typically you don't see this. Uh, 11 bars of the, that great guitar riff at the top of verse four here. It comes back again. It's now here at, at the end it, for this, what I'm calling 11 bars. It's just awesome. It's incredible. This is the head banging part. You know, when you're in the back of the car with Wayne and Garth, <laughs> you're head banging at this part. It feels like this is where, where Freddie's like, you know, screw it. I am who I am. And it feels like it's where Freddie comes alive. And one more thing, I didn't, I never knew that it was so you think you can stone me and spit in my eye. Oh, it actually, it's, on, on my lyrics, it says, so you think you can stop me. I believe it's stone me because in my, you know, once again, in my research, they noted that the stoning is once again, a biblical reference. Sure. They would, they would bury people in the sand up to their heads and they would, they would start with small pebbles and, and basically have the, have the, the cranium bleed out. Right. It's a horribly barbaric <laughs> type of punishment. Right. So I do think it's stone me. So you think you can stone me and spit in my eye. So you think you okay. can love me and leave me to die. Is that referring to, to Mary here? You, know, you think you could stone me and spit in my eye? I don't know. I never got the feeling, and when you watch the movie too, he adores Mary. He he's like broken hearted oh, yeah. that, that you know, like that's his best friend in the world. He writes amazing songs for. Her. But I I think this is more like to the to the world to anyone who would try to keep him down. I don't think it's towards Mary. I think the feeling towards Mary is always like he feels terrible that he's going to break her heart, which is interesting because Chris, this next line. Oh, baby, can't do this to me, baby. Just got to get out. Just got to get right out of here. Something that I read that feels so out of left field and has nothing to do with the rest of this song was that it's speculated that this line is a direct shot at Queen's former manager, Norman Sheffield, because the band members claimed that he treated them unfairly. Apparently, leading up to the release of this song, which was on their fourth album, the band had, like, no money. And, And it seems strange to me personally because... It doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the song, but supposedly that's a shot at him. (laughs) That's interesting. Well, when we get out of this part, it comes back to that guitar lead that we were talking about earlier, that crying guitar solo. It's not exactly that, but there's 10 bars that kind of mimic that guitar solo from earlier in the song with drums, bass, and piano, and there's lots of oohs and ahs that are happening for this part. (laughs) 
I love how it harkens back in the song. We don't really see that too much uh, in this track. Yeah, it's such a musical journey. You kind of end up where you started after you've been on this wild ride. Nothing really matters. Anyone can see. Nothing really matters. Nothing really matters to me. Anyway, the wind blows. On the first line, nothing really matters. Anyone can see. On C, the drums stop. That's the last you, you hear the drums in the track. On the third line, there's a guitar, that crying lick on the sixth bar here comes in on the right speaker. And on the ninth bar, it comes in on the left speaker. And then any way the wind blows at the very end, there's a gong. It's not super loud in the mix, but there's a gong there. And a gong to me kind of is like it's that's the finale. It's over. It's also in in my interpretation, it's a little bit foreboding. Uh It leaves you a little bit like. It's a little bit mysterious or something. Yeah, it's like a like a like a musical cliffhanger. And yeah. the last thing the last thing I have in my notes here, Chris, is uh, before we talk about these lyrics, is why stop there? <laughs> yeah. Why did the, why did this song stop? For real? I mean, this thing could have went on. Uh, it, it's it's so perfect as it is. I would never want it to be any longer. But how they decide this was enough. Who said that this is the end of the song? <laughs> you know what's so interesting about that to me, Chris? If you go to a musical or an opera, that it's almost as if this was extracted. This was a piece written for an opera, but there's a story before it. There's a story after it. It continues in both directions, but this was just taken from that as if it was a piece written for an opera, you know? And right. I think that to me, that's how I, I would explain that. Yeah. Cause there's a lot and, more story to be told what happens now, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and again here on the last line, any way the wind blows that harkens back to the intro when he, he has that lyric at the, at the top of the song, which he ends the song with that. And it's kind of like almost to me, he's come to a piece with everything. It's like, Hey, you know what? Anyway, the wind blows, it's, it's fine by me. I'm just going to take things as they come. I've accepted who I am. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. That ending, nothing really matters. Anyone could see nothing really matters. I could see how someone could interpret that as sad. I take that as peaceful. I think mm-hmm. that's why, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a religious person. And when someone tries to bat my eardrums about that kind of stuff. I'm like, I find peace in the fact that nothing matters and you're here for a certain amount of time. And and when you're gone, you're gone. I find, I personally find peace in that. And that's why I love this ending. I think it sounds to me like, you know, Freddie's on that same wavelength. Yeah. And if you've seen the movie, of course, you've seen the scene, but there is actual footage uh, on YouTube and other places of their performance in July of 1985 for Live Aid. When they played this song, they brought the house down. They stole the show, arguably, from every act that played that day. It's absolutely incredible.
Hey everyone, stick around. There's more Chris to Makes a podcast after a few words from our sponsors. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. Do you enjoy the content and production of Krista Makes a Podcast? Do you have an idea for a podcast or an existing podcast that you'd like to take to the next level? Well, check out WeKnowPodcasting.com. At WeKnowPodcasting.com, we have over 25 years of combined experience in the pod field, and we're ready to help you succeed in the golden era of podcasting. As we near the end of the show, here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Krista Makes a Podcast, all you have to do is email your best song via MP3 only and a short bio to bandyoumightnotknow at gmail.com. This week's featured artist is Straight Jacket Feeling, a pop-punk, post-hardcore, and emo-influenced band from New Jersey, featuring John McManus on vocals and guitar, Joey DeCamille on guitar, and Kevin Sardi on the drums. Here's a snippet of their latest single, Heaven's Gate. Not sure what else there is to say about this song. It's it's uh, it's a masterpiece. Yeah, it lives on. Everyone knows this song. Like you said, the most streamed song of the 20th century. And I only say that and bring up the streaming because streaming is now the way we consume music. A nearly six-minute song with no chorus. Uh, if that isn't inspiring as a songwriter to go out and do whatever the hell you want to do and don't feel confined by the rules. I don't know what what's more inspiring than that, you know? Yeah. And speaking of streaming, I'd love to be the most streamed podcast in the world. And you, the <laughs> listeners, you, the listeners can help us with that. Go to Christamakes.com. That's where you'll find our supporting cast, which is pretty much our VIP program over here. You get episodes of the after party where Chris and I expound on episodes we've done on a whole host of other topics. It's a lot of fun. Christamakes.com. Yeah, I'm excited. I know this week, the one that goes along with this episode, the episode of the after party that we are going to record is about more grandiose songs. We're going to dive into some of our other favorites or some of the most famous ones anyway. And uh, because I think that's interesting, man, to put so much effort and time and thought into the songs so cool. So yeah, once again, KristaMakes.com, please head over there and sign up for the supporting cast. And if you haven't already, I'm going to say it again. I said at the top, please join our Krista Makes a Podcast Facebook group. We'd love to have you. We'd love to have your interpretation of what these lyrics mean. Well, I'm sure we'll be having a healthy discussion in there this week. And if you haven't already, give me a follow on Instagram at less than Chris D. And I want to give a heartfelt shout out to Mr. Freddie Mercury for creating this masterpiece. May he rest in peace. We'll see you next week. I don't
Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast.